0: Beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Yo, welcome to My Summer Lair. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan, and I'm here today in Long Island talking to photographer Jamal Shabazz. Thank you for taking some time and uh, hanging out with me. No problem. Thank you for having an interest in my work. Let's we'll start at the uh, beginning. So this week I've been in New York City hanging out with different people. And uh, inevitably there's a conversation where people are like, yo, are you enjoying New York City? Like, are you having fun? And when I say, yeah, I'm enjoying it, people are always like, oh, man, you should have been back here when this era or this year or this decade with New York City when uh, there was a lot of cool venues and there was a lot of cool music or when hip-hop was good in the early 2000s. So the New York City like we see now today, uh, do you miss it from the New York City that you see in your photos?
1: That's such a difficult question because when I really look at when I came up, there was a lot going on. You know, was, you know, I grew up during the 1960s and 70s. The war in Vietnam was taking place. A lot of young men were being drafted in my community and going, going to war and coming back. The heroin epidemic was on the rise. Uh, fast forward to the 1980s. You know, we had the crack and AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of crime in the city. You know, so I, I look back at that time with mixed emotions. It's bittersweet. I appreciate the vibration that was there, the, the the unity that we had. The music was fantastic back then from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s on.
0: The block parties.
1: The, the block parties, the fun that we had. And then crack came and changed everything. So, you know, I'm always uh, caught in between when it comes down to making a comparison between the old and new. Mm-hmm. What I find now in, in this New York is... I don't know. It's just it's just different. I think social media and technology has changed things a lot too. Because when I came up, we communicated with each other more. You know, we didn't have the cell phones. We you know we uh, we talked to each other more. You could walk down the street and see somebody and greet them and get a greeting back. Mm-hmm. And I don't find that today. So I miss that part of it—the ability to communicate with people. You know, now everyone has a headphone. Everyone is distracted. Back then, those distractions weren't there.
0: You're talking about an actual community. Yes. Not just strangers who live with each other in, yes. a, in a neighborhood.
1: It could have been strangers. You walk down the street, you know, you saw somebody, you you know. In, in a lot of cases, you spoke and you got a response back. Now you you can't do that. So I really missed that part in New York. I I, I missed the quality music. I missed the love songs that existed. to produced a certain vibration. I, I missed the protest music and music that, that that really had a lot of substance in it. Today, it's just a very different time. Everyone is pretty much in their own world. A lot of people are just moving fast. The communication is mm-hmm. not there anymore. Uh, it's congested because Brooklyn and Harlem, which have greatly been gentrified, have changed a lot. And now these areas are just packed with people. And you know, there's a lot of the diversity is there, which is good, and I appreciate that. But it's just congested right now. I, I'm amazed when I go back to Brooklyn and look at all of these 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 high rise buildings that are being built. And now the city is just packed with people, something mm-hmm. I never really saw before in that magnitude. And so it's just a very interesting time right now. So, I, again, I'm in the middle when it comes down to, to missing because there's, 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 a, there's a good side about growing up in, an, in, a, in the early days. And there's a bad side. And same mm-hmm. with today. You know, I look at what's going on. I have total mixed emotions, especially when we look at the overall climate of the country and the vibration that's producing, which is echoing down to cities like New York.
0: Yeah, it's old school New York compared to current, like, new New York. Is that like transition between, like, shooting film, which you did back in the day, to, like, going to digital now? Is it kind of very similar like that?
1: I don't, I don't know. It, 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 in, in a sense, it is. For me, when it comes down to photography, you know, I embrace both film and digital. I like digital photography now. Especially for the type of photography I do, I like to interact with people, and the fact that I could show people the image in real time and, and email it to them, mm-hmm. I love that part of, of, of this day and time. So I really can't make that comparison, you know, when it comes down to a film and digital in relationship to, to old and new. Because I I embrace that new part of it like never before. It took me a while to do it, mm-hmm. but once I did, I appreciate it. Even with the newness of New York right now, I embrace the diversity because it puts me in a position to communicate with people around the globe who are my, who are coming to. New York. So I, I, you know, that part of it is, is quite interesting. But um, like I said, when it comes down to film and digital, I've done so much of both. It's an even balance with me going back to uh, uh, old New York versus New York, New York. It's an even balance
0: there too. And as a conscious black artist yourself, were you always like aware of how slow photography was? Because there's always an urgency I find with a lot of black conscious artists because there's such an epidemic they're always trying to reach out people trying to save people there's an urgency with being a black artist and photography itself is very slow in the way that you develop it the way you set it up to take the photo it was a very slow medium did you find that there was a tension between what you're trying to achieve in terms of the community versus using a slower medium?
1: Not necessarily because it's for me it was bigger than photography it was about really connecting with people and the, the camera became a, a, a compass that led me to different situations and, and people. And the photograph became evidence of the conversation. So there was a very slow process back then because during the early days, you, you, you bought film, you created the image, and you had to get the photograph processed. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it, it took a long time. It might have taken a week and sometimes even two weeks to get that image processed. But for me, that allowed me time to connect with my subjects. And that was very important to me. Uh, photography overall back then was very fast to me because, you know, I was always a reader and I was always looking at photography books constantly. So I, I stayed in the library. So, you know, for me, Photography was just pretty much like it is now when we look at Instagram and, and, and the flood of images and on there. As a young child, I absorbed books. I was always looking for photography It was something about that language of photography that just drew me in. My father was a photographer. He had a, a, a vast library within our home. So I was always moved by by the images. And at the same time, he taught me how to develop. So I, I developed an appreciation early on for that slow process of creating an image, you know, to really absorb the essence of photography and what it is to create images and, and, and this meaning. And, and the, uh, the, just the time necessary to, 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 from the moment you put the film in the camera to the time you press the shutter speed, the time that you saw that image come out, you know, in, in the developer, you know, you, you learn to really appreciate time and memory.
0: Mm hmm. And speaking of like time and memory, like you're known for documenting a, a period of time before crack, before AIDS, especially in, in New York City. Is there a difference between memories and history, especially when it comes to photography? I think it's really
1: one and the same. Memory and history are, 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 are identical to me, you know, mm-hmm. especially when I get the feedback from my subjects and what it means to them. Uh, when they look at my photographs, they have both. They have a historic record of a time, mm-hmm. and, and, and it, it brings back memories of that time at the same time. So I look at them really being one and the same. Uh, memory and history are, are, are one and the same. They are both equally as valuable.
0: And you talked a little bit about your dad um, being a photographer. and In photography, there's that idiom, right, where you have to follow the light. Yes. So how is like following the light helped you to discover your light and your career?
1: Oh man, uh, photography, you know, going back to the, the camera itself, I look at the camera as a compass. And once I started to appreciate the science of photography, image making, mm-hmm. uh, it put me on a particular path that led me to, 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 to light. To let, it led me to a place where I was able to connect with people all over the globe based off this layman's of photography. Mm-hmm. So unbeknownst that to me at the time when I picked up the camera, I didn't know that I was going to be on this path. It took me really 35 plus years to, to understand what this camera represented. It allowed me to understand that the fact that I was an alchemist and I had the ability to create, to take something out of nothing and bring it into into light. And now at this stage of my life, I'm almost 60 years old now. I've been doing this since I was 15. and It has led me to an incredible path where, especially in this day and time that we are living in, I have met people around the world under the language of photography and people who are using this craft to make the world a better place. So I feel that this path has led me to meet really good, positive people from all over like never before in my life. And I would have never imagined that when I first started, because when I first saw the light and possibility, it was it was on a local level. And it was it was beautiful at that point. But I would would never have imagined that my path would lead me to the stage in my life right now where I met people from everywhere. I get emails from people from Russia, from, from Korea, Japan, Central South America, based off the language of photography. We may not speak the, language, the, the, the English language, but it's through the, 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 the image. Mm-hmm. That language of photography has allowed me to really connect with people in a good way and build bonds and friendships to the point now that one of the greatest accomplishments of my life is, 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 is in the making right now, where I'm curating an exhibition based off the people I met on social media. You know, on this particular path. And a lot of them I've never met physically before, but through their work, I've I've, I've learned a lot about them. And I decided to curate an exhibition here in New York called uh, Perspectives based off that. And what what that means to me is that at this stage in my life, you know, I've been able to bring people together from different cultural backgrounds under that one umbrella of photography. And using that voice, you know, individual voices to address issues that are very pressing right now. And that's the path that's led me on. So that has been the, the direction that of all these years I've been on, trying to understand, you know, what is my purpose in life? And, uh, and I struggle with it. And now at this stage, I have total clarity. It's about coming together under that layman's like never before. And not only photographers, but artists in general. And using the art as, as a form of, of activism to try mm-hmm. to make this world a better place.
0: Yeah, I know your work sometimes gets classified as like old school New York or old school hip hop and that kind of stuff, but it, it never felt like documentation. It always felt like more of a calling. Yes. Right? Like, just like you said, like you felt that there was a certain purpose in the way that you interacted with your subjects. It was, it was more than just documenting old school uh, Kango hats and like old school New York.
1: It, it was, in fact, a calling. When I returned back to America uh, during the summer of 1980 after serving time in the United States military, I came back to a very changing time. It was a moment in, 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 in New York history where a lot of young men were dying prematurely of violence. And there's a lot of hatred in the city. And, and I realized that I needed to make a difference. You know, so I returned back to my old neighborhood and I had my camera in tow and my chessboard. And I realized that I have to use my voice to speak to young people, to be a guide and mentor to them in a way that I wasn't really guided on my path. So that was my general concern. The camera just allowed me to really connect with them and freeze them for that moment. Mm -hmm. When you look at a lot of my photographs, you see groups of young men in particular, and that was my target. And it was a very conscious uh, uh, idea I had to engage them about the times that we are living in because I I had a a genuine concern for them. And at the same time, I saw that something negative was on the horizon. I didn't quite know what it was, but there was certain in the atmosphere that just didn't feel right. And unbeknownst to me at that time, the crack epidemic was on the horizon. So I felt that I need to use my camera both as a compass, but also as a microphone to engage young people about what was going on. So oftentimes, when I would see a group of young men and just people in general, I would stop them, and I would, I would, I would uh. uh introduce myself and speak about my concern but at the same time I, I, I wanted them to know that I recognize them. I see something great and beautiful inside you and I want to freeze this moment in time because I believe it's going to mean something later on in life and I want nothing in return other than you to help me try to save these young men out here. So it was always about that. That's why when you look at my photographs there's a certain serious there, a seriousness in the face of my subjects because I'm engaging in conversation. It wasn't about that photograph. What was important for me to freeze that moment in time And for me, on a personal level, you know, have a memory of the people in which I had conversations with over my life. Because my work, for the most part, is a visual diary of my life. That's what it was about. I never wanted to be without memory. When I was in the service, you know, I brought photographs with me that I had made in the 1970s. And they allowed me in moments of solitude to reflect back on the 1970s and my time and my friendship. And I promised myself when I returned back to the States, I would never be without memory. So my father helped me. To, he he further strengthened my understanding of photography, and he taught me always carry your camera everywhere you went. You know, so the camera was f- for his his vision was for me to be a photographer. For me personally, it was a combination of embracing the craft of photography, but more importantly, trying to save these young people.
0: Which is and you've used the phrase before. I see your greatness, my young brother, and I would be honored to let me capture your legacy. You recognize something in the in these people, like in these communities that you were seeing. Like there was a light there that you were able to see that most people kind of overlooked or just kind of dismissed.
1: Right. Oftentimes we are we are deemed invisible and no one really pays attention to us. So you know, I use statements like that overall. You know, and they vary from situation to situation. Sometimes I don't, but in my introduction to people, you have to make people feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And 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 I was in sincere excuse me, I was very sincere in, in my approach with young people. And I honestly saw greatness in them because I saw myself. And, I, and I, I looked at how I was coming up and how I needed to hear that. So I felt that, you know, oftentimes we don't hear situations of that nature. You know, I see greatness in you. I see beauty in you. Sometimes it's just on the physical level, especially with women. You know, you're a beautiful person. But one of the things I would say, you have a really beautiful spirit. You know, you have a, a, a good soul. Mm-hmm. And with the young men, I just see greatness in you. You know, I see warriors within inside you. They needed to hear that because they, they weren't never told that before. So it loosened them up. And it allowed me to engage them in conversation about life, about the future. you know. And, and at that point, they saw that I was sincere at the same time and said, wow, this person really cares about us. And I did. And it, and not only did it allow me to, to capture the image, but friendships, friendships were based off that relationship. And it amazes me now as I go on social media and the various platforms I deal with where I post photographs and so many of the young people that I photograph, 35 years ago are coming back to me and they're thanking me not for just capturing their image but taking the time to give them a sense of guidance when they when
0: they need it the most and that means a lot to me well, where does that hope come from though because like you said you could see the dark clouds coming and there was a storm coming there was crack coming there was aids coming all this like these were not the best communities in areas in the first place right they were abandoned in a lot of ways emotionally or spiritually so how did, where did that hope come from, that where you can go to somebody and see, I see your spirit, I see your legacy, I see your greatness, and you're a warrior?
1: Well, the hope was questionable because it was a very critical time. There was moments, and, and many moments, even to this day, that I felt the great sense of hopelessness. But I had to do this for the ancestors, those that felt hopelessness on those slave ships and, and, and had to endure the hardships, hardships of slavery. I had to be a light. And, and, and continue to uphold the torchlight in spite of the darkness, in spite of what I was feeling inside. Because there's many moments that I went into a deep depression with the things I was seeing. But photography became my therapy and enabled me, it enabled me to continue on. But it was a struggle going on. It was a very difficult time. Again, we had the AIDS epidemic. We had the crack epidemic. We had the war on drugs. Things was tra- changing rapidly and I had to be a soldier out there in the forefront. I couldn't sit back And not say anything. Mm -hmm. See, I drew a lot of inspiration from Harry Belafonte, and he often speaks about the role of the artist—that we have to be the gatekeepers. It's voices like his that gave me an encouragement, encouragement to move on. Because here you have this man who went through, you know, uh, racism during the 1940s, the 50s, the 60s. He saw it all, but despite that, he continued to stand firm on his square. And, and speak about the issues that were going on. And I felt I had a responsibility to do the same thing, despite what I was feeling inside. It was a really d- difficult time, but I had to do it. And to this day, I realized that I, I I made the right decision because the seeds that I planted, it made a difference in the lives of a lot of young people.
0: And you, you mentioned already, like, you went overseas uh, during the war. No, v- there, there was no war. The war Sorry, ended the, at that point. Yeah. Uh, but you went overseas. You were you also worked at Rikers as well. Yes. As a prison guard. And you were living in New York City in the 70s and 80s, right? So what have those experiences taught you about dignity and pride and how we value each other or we don't value each other? Well, I came up
1: with a strong family u- unit. You know, I had a mother, I had a father, I had uncles, I had aunts. So I always saw that pride and dignity within my family. You know, I looked at the family albums and the neighbors. You know, it was always there. Everyone had a father. You know, bet during that time, most of our parents served in the service. So we, I just came up seeing it. You know, so it was very important to me. And I also understood the danger of stereotypical images and how damaging they could be. So in looking at all of what was going on, especially as a correction officer, I'm in the belly of the beast now. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the worst of humanity every day, sometimes 16 hours of the day. I mean, brutality, hatred every day. I had to leave that job and find hope. You know, I had to leave and... And, and, and document beauty and culture and dignity to balance out all the negativity I was seeing during the course of my twenty years, so that was one of the motivating factors you know leaving that job and seeking that light, seeking a, a better place and that allowed me to survive because you know working in, working on Rikers island it's a very, it was a very terrible time. you know crack had just hit uh, the prisons the jails were being full uh it was It was a serious war on drugs, and a lot of people being locked up many who, who needed rehabilitation versus uh, 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 incarceration because a lot of them fell victim to, 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 to drugs. And for many of them, it was a form of therapy. They needed to escape uh, the PTSD that they just suffered just, just living in America. So I had to be a voice and, 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 and just document that hope because I look at my work in part today, more so now than ever before, that it serves as a form of visual medicine. It helps to heal people because when we look at what's going on today, you know, the homelessness, the despair, the hatred, uh, the various epidemics that we are dealing with, when people look at my work, they see a sense of joy and it makes them feel good. When I post a photograph on Instagram and a person tells me that your photograph made my day, it made me smile. It made my heart smile. It lets me know that I'm doing my job. And it allows me to understand the magnitude of the work and the fact that it's really a form of visual medicine. What really touches my heart is when young people write me who tell me that I have photographs of their parents who are no longer here and how that makes them feel special. that They never saw a photograph of their father before like what I have, and when they saw it, it gave them a sense of closure.
0: You're talking about almost like that classic uh, metaphor analogy of like the rose that grows in through the concrete, yes, right? Because that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that rose Always. in the, the concrete. And that's that must right. be really difficult to see, or is it something that you've kind of now trained and are able to kind of identify a lot more quickly? No,
1: It's really not difficult. It's something about photography for me. I think that when I bring the uh, camera to my eye, you know, my third eye is open and I'm seeing things a lot of people may not see. And it's something that photographers can identify with. I'm always looking for the light. I'm always looking for possibility, you know, constantly. I'm like a fisherman when I travel out. You know, I'm always uh, in search of life. So it's there. Everywhere I, go, I can walk out my door, it's there. And there's something about having a camera that allows me to just see it. Because, again, that camera is like a magnet, and a compass that brings me to people. So whenever I step out my door, it's always there. Every single day, I'm finding hope and possibility. It could be in, in some of the strangest places, but it's always there. So I'm never without a subject matter. So that that rose that grows in the concrete, it's always around me. It's just a matter of just being able to see it with your third eye.
0: Mm-hmm. And just to kind of go back to these communities, you felt a sense of ownership, like... There's classic Marvel superheroes like Daredevils in Hell's Kitchen, Luke Cage's in Harlem. You felt a sense of ownership, I guess, for these communities like uh, Flatbush and uh, Brooklyn. Those are the communities that kind of made your heart sing. Like you felt an ownership, almost like a protection for what those communities were going through.
1: Well, I think for me personally, you know, growing up in both Red Hook and East Flatbush, it was about making sure that the history and the community was preserved. So when I returned back to America in 1980, I went back to the communities to document them, to reconnect myself with the, sub, with, the, with the people first, but to also to reconnect with my past, especially Red Hook, because I was born and raised there. So I knew it was changing rapidly, and I, want, I, want, I felt the need to document as much as I can in the old so it could be preserved in the history books. Because everything I'm doing now really is about making sure that, you know, first of all, this gift that I've been given, it's a divine gift. And I feel that with it, I have a responsibility to use it to make a difference in this world. One of the things I want to do besides uh, engage young people is make sure that all of the creations that I've been blessed to make preserved in institutions museums and and institutions of higher learning and in doing so it's not about preserving my legacy Mm -hmm. but it's more so about preserving the legacy of my communities and that's what that's about and not only my community my personal communities of flatbush and red hook but harlem and and all the communities in which i travel to and the communities around the world because it's not just limited to brooklyn it's it's about it's it's what i've documented in france and germany and thailand and japan everywhere i go I make it a point to contribute to the preservation of history of various cultures. So it's bigger in Brooklyn right
0: now. You used the word legacy a few times now. So you almost see yourself as just another link in the chain then.
1: That's all it is. I'm just, I'm just I've, I've been given a torchlight from those that, you know, who, who came before me. So I look at the contributions that Gordon Parks made and Roy D. Carrava and Leonard Freed and so many others. I'm just, I'm, I just have that, it's been passed on to me. We can't let the torch die. So I have a, a responsibility as an image maker you know, to uphold the banner of, 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 of history and culture, you know, and make sure that it's, it's preserved for future generations to see. So when I'm going, perhaps young people could look at my work and find inspiration to pick up the camera.
0: From the time that you were documenting stuff in the 70s and 80s till now, have things gotten better? Or are they kind of like, gotten worse? Like, because I mean, the current political climate suggests that things are getting worse. <sighs> okay, that's the answer to the question. It's a very
1: <laughs> difficult question to ask. I think For me personally, it's gotten better because now I'm in a position to communicate with people around the world. And that's something I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I first started out, my communications were limited to to my uh, community. Now I have a really broad base where I can engage people. And I see that there's hope. There's a lot of good people out there who are using the craft of photography and art in general to make a difference in this world. So that makes me feel good. And we have to combat it right now. You know, but it's a very critical time, not only in American history but in, in world history. When I look at the things that are going on throughout the world, I'm very troubled. You know, when I look at global warming, when I look at uh pollution, I look at the wars that are continuing to go on and the hatred, uh, uh, corrupt governments. It's a very troubling time right now. So, um, uh, I, I, I went someplace else with it. You know, but I just feel that again, I have to uh do the best I can to make a difference in the world, here. and I think that this is a, it's a good time for me because. Back in the days when I first started out, I would walk around looking to connect with people on the street corner and people I didn't know, strangers. Today I could do it on Instagram. You know, mm-hmm. I could post a photograph and now I could have people, for the lack of a better word, follow me. And in, in that following, I'm able to develop a friendship with you. And we could find, we could meet on a common ground about different things that are going around the world. I could showcase images that touch your heart and propel you and propel you into motion to want to make the world a better place. That means a lot to me back in the days, like I said, I I sort people out. You know, I was always walking around the city looking to engage people about different things that was going on. And it wasn't always easy. But now, despite the distractions that we have in walking on on the street, by me just being home and on my phone, I could post a picture that could touch somebody, you know, throughout the four corners of the planet, and we could have a conversation. And I like that. So, when I look at things on that level things have gotten better mm-hmm. but when I look at things on a real realistic level especially with the current president of this country and the things that he's saying I'm very concerned about that
0: so you you almost view as like a lit candle and if a strong wind comes along it's yeah. it's potential to be snuffed out and then you have to reignite it again that's a good way of looking at it and I and I do and
1: I feel that we have to keep that flame going in order to keep that flame going we got to give everyone candles I can hold the candle by myself, mm-hmm. but if it goes out, it's going to be darkness. So my objective is to give everyone a candle. And to, to me, the candle is photography, conscious photography, not just photography, but inspiring young people to, to engage photography as a way to document both the joys and the sorrows of the world. You know, I have a good friend, matter of fact, that I met in Toronto, Sarah Hilton. I, I appreciate her so much. I met, met her back in 2008 in Toronto, and she was an inspiring photographer. And somehow now she has gone on to be this incredible photographer that's traveling all over the world, to depress, mainly to depressed countries. And she's using that gift to show both the, the horrors of what's going on in terms of the poverty and despair, but also the joy. And, and that makes me feel good to know that she has that light right now. And so many others want to make a difference. They just don't want to make images, but they want to make images that address some of the problems that we are de- faced face with today. And there's so many people who have taken that, that, that pledge
0: as your platform and your voice has gotten larger uh it's almost becoming like more of a megaphone now right from when you first started yes. with with the social media now that you connect with all these people is there more pressure on you then to kind of continue to keep speaking do you find it harder to kind of keep speaking or is it like gotten easier now because you've been doing it f- so long
1: it's actually easier now because in the beginning i didn't really know what i was doing you know I, I i wasn't clear on my purpose in life you know i was just i was just engaging young people developing a visual diary but as the situations got worse, again going back to AIDS, uh, crack, foster care, uh, mass incarceration, hatred, everything, I realized that I have to be a light. I can't sit back and not say anything. I have to step forward and do the best I can to make a difference in the world. I have a responsibility because again, I was given a gift of vision, and with that gift, I have to do something with it. So I had to I had to uh, be proactive. And, and and do the best I can to make a difference in this world here. But please go back to that question, because I got a little sidetracked. Could you repeat that, what you
0: just said, so I could... So I just wanted to know now that, like, your platform's gotten bigger, obviously, from when you started in the 70s till now. And your voice has gotten bigger and has a lot more weight. So I want to know if there was more pressure. Oh,
1: okay. There's no pressure. There was pressure in the beginning, because, again, I didn't know what I was doing. But as I start to study those that did it before me, especially Gordon Parks... I realized that I have to do this here. It's what I didn't want to do because I never thought I would ever speak at universities. Mm -hmm. I was a young man that that had a speech impediment. So it's not like I was very articulate when I was younger. And now, you know, when my first, my book back in the days came out, you know, I just did it for the local community. I had no idea that that book would go around the world and create opportunities for me now to do interviews and to uh, speak to people in universities. I never knew that. And I was reluctant at first because I wasn't prepared for it mentally. So I had to be groomed into that. And it was a lot of trial and error. But now I have greater clarity and I have to speak truth to power. Before, I was very reluctant to, reluctant to speak about certain aspects of my life. Because, you know, uh, working in the jail wasn't re- really easy. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, mixed emotions when it comes down to how uh, an officer is perceived. Like, why would you work in a place like that? So I never really gave that backstory, And in not doing it, 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 it people didn't really understand the essence of who I was. Now, after being retired for so many years, I speak about that and everything. You know, I don't hold back. I was very uh, uh, apprehensive in the beginning, but I can't do that now. Because, you know, in in not doing it, I'm I'm pigeonholed as just this hip-hop photographer. Mm -hmm. And for so many years, I was just called that. But no one understands the vastness of my work. But in order for them to understand that, I have to speak. So there's no restrictions. There's no apprehensiveness anymore. There's no pressure at all. I have to do this right here. And and, and I don't really... I don't have to answer to anyone. The fact that I have Instagram and, and, and various social media feeds, I can just do whatever I want to do on my own. If, if people don't really like it, you, then you don't have to support what I do.
0: Yeah, there's God has a habit of always picking the most underqualified person to kind of go yes. do the work, like to do really important work, which is kind of how opposite of how we hire people or get people like organized. You know what I mean? Yes. We try and find the most vocal person, the most eloquent person or something like that to go speak and to do those things. But God has a hard of doing the opposite thing, of just finding the, le- the least qualified person and giving them the most responsibility. Yes. We're here in Long Island, and you said you had to kind of get out of the city a little bit. You mentioned something when we first came in. Can you just kind of go back to that, just how you wanted to switch it up? Just
1: Oh yeah. When you endure so much hardships to the con- concrete, it puts a lot of wear and tear on you, both mentally and physically. And I've been on the grind since 1975, mm-hmm. you know, physically in terms of, you know, putting in this work. And uh, I've seen a lot. You know, I've seen a lot of trauma, a lot of pain. And I've been traumatized by a lot of it. And now I'm at a stage in my life that I'm not really photographing as much as I used to. But what I am doing, I'm decompressing from my journey. I'm revisiting my archive, both my photographs and my journals. And I needed that. I need to go back to reexamine what my journey was all about to understand it. And at the same time, I'm healing from a lot of things, too. Going back to working on Rikers Island, the brutality that I will witness. You know, I was traumatized behind so much of the hatred. And uh, and just images in general, not only my for my personal experiences, but the fact that I grew up during the Vietnam War, and I was drawn towards the images of war. So, and not only the Vietnam War, but war in general, it was something about war that really uh, uh, captivated my father because he was a navy photographer. So he always brought home books centered on war. So as a young child, I was seeing all this right here. You know, I studied war extensively. I mean, my library half of my, the books in my library are rooted in war. And not only just the the writing, but the imagery. So I took a lot of that stuff in. And I needed to just decompress from all of that and just unravel the pain and frustration that I witnessed and and, and get my balance back. And it took me many years. It took me 17 years to do it. And I could say at this particular stage in my life, I'm I'm somewhat healed from all of that. So I needed to get away from a while. You can't stay in the front lines all the time. You got to take a moment of pause. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty much out there faithfully for many years, for most of my life. And, uh, and I'm helping a lot of people at the same time because I'm acting as, 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 a, as a mentor to a lot of people and, and they sharing their pain to me. So not only do I have my own individual pain, but in, in the process of trying to help people, I'm taking in their pain in, 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 in order to, to, to uh, help them to heal. So I needed to separate myself from that and just get my balance back. So I spent a lot of time at the ocean, you know, something magical about being there that has allowed me to, to heal and, and regain my focus and get close to the creator.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were on the front lines, especially during the 80s and stuff. It was the war on drugs, the war on poverty, and these kind of things. Here in in, uh, America and places like New York City, those were the wars that that was actively being fought. Yes. You didn't necessarily even have to travel overseas to see the war. Like, it was happening right here.
1: That's right, and and I saw it in real time. You know, when crack hit in 1983, that's when I first became a correctional officer. So I was there for ground zero. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: what was very uh, uh, traumatizing for me was seeing people from my community fell victim to it, good people, individuals that had good jobs and they were, they were, they were moving up in society, and whatever reason they, a lot of two things happened for two types of people some individuals fell victim by smoking crack, and it was their way of escaping whatever pain and trauma they went through, so they fell victim and they got addicted and on the other hand, you had young men and women that saw the profit in selling drugs, selling crack in particular, and they started selling it so now in jail, I'm seeing both sides. I'm seeing promising young men and women who, who were going to school and, 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 you know, had homes. They fell victim. And now they are broken men and women. And on the other hand, I saw young men that, that want to experience American dream. And for a moment, they might have had the nice car and the women in the, the jury. And now they got busted. And now they're being faced with 25 the life. So I saw that. So it, it, was, it was very painful to, to witness that, and at the same time, I, I gotta always go back to AIDS. You know, I'm looking at that in real time. I'm interviewing people. I'm searching people who have, who have the virus. So I'm seeing this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it was very difficult for me, visually, when you see, it's one thing when it's impersonal, but it's another thing when you're looking at people that you know, and it's ground zero. It's, it's hitting right away. And at that time, the politician's philosophy was, lock them up and throw away the key. And even when I look at the Central Park Five, you know, and what happened during that time, Uh, That was during my time period. And a lot of young men being arrested. You know, they were saying that we're innocent. So you're caught in this situation where you're perplexed because you don't know. And you have so many people of color in front of you. And you're trying to be a light to them. You're trying to be empathetic in this process. And it it gets very difficult at the same time you're dealing with violence. You know, so it it was a very difficult time growing up in the 1980s, witnessing all of that and trying to come out uh, 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 unscathed. And I'm scarred. I have plenty of battle scars, and, and they are all pretty much mental.
0: And we've seen now in the last couple of years how DNA testing has kind of released a number of uh, people that were arrested. And it turned out that they were innocent. That they were saying they were innocent all along. Like you said, you become numb to this, right? Because it's hard to separate the, the truth from the liar sometimes. It's,
1: it's very difficult. You try to be non judgmental, you know, and you try to treat people accordingly. And it's very difficult. I worked in mental health. During my time in corrections, I spent 10 years in mental health. And I realized then that uh, a lot of people are really mentally ill. And no one really speaks about that. 40% of, of the prison population, the jail population, should I say, here in New York, uh, uh, people mentally ill. is probably even higher now. And that was back in the 1980s. So a lot, and, and I had some serious killers in my area. People who've committed some vicious crimes, but they were mentally ill. And they needed help. Because what happened in the 1980s a lot of the mental institutions closed down in favor of building more prisons. So now you had more mentally ill people on the street. And a lot of them were being arrested because of just the way they were moving. People were afraid of them. So the idea was just lock them up and throw away the key. Mm-hmm. And in the law enforcement community, sometimes it was a matter of overtime. You know, you, you, you arrest somebody, you gain overtime. And, and people didn't really care. You know, there was times in the community where you had like this fishnet going on, this web, and you just snatch up everybody in the street corner at a particular time. And, and you didn't really care. So, you know, it, it was very difficult when, you, when you're looking at people that said, you know, you're looking at people and you, you feel that this person doesn't really need to be here. He needs to be in the treatment program. Or, you know, you have the work, you have poor people who can't afford a $500 bail. So now you're locked up, you know, where if you were able to get a bail, you, you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be there. And then when you look at disparities between crack cocaine and cocaine, and that was a really big thing back in the days, too, how the politicians were very hard on those that got caught with crack versus cocaine. So, you know, there was a lot of pain. And, and, and again, in working in mental health, I saw another side of it. I saw the young men that couldn't take it no more. And they want to hang themselves or kill themselves because they just cannot deal with, with the horror of a jail and prison. And it's a very vile place. Mm-hmm. You know, I had the pleasure to go home every night, but I think about the people that can't. And I know a lot of people who are under my, my uh, 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 for the lack of a better word, guidance directly who told me they were innocent and end up doing 20, 25 years for a crime they didn't commit. One of the worst scenarios I remember that, that, that hurts my heart when I think about it is a young man who was accused of killing his mother and sister. And they didn't even care. Uh, I think the detective uh, got a, a person who was addicted to crack to say this person did it. So imagine your mother and sister are viciously murdered. And you are convicted of of the crime and you go away for 25 years and then they come to find out due to DNA that you didn't commit the crime. You know, fine, you might get a few million dollars, but your life has been compromised. You know, when I look at going back to the Central Park Five and what Corey Wise went through, this young man was saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Did all that time. Went through the horrors of prison and brutalized. And now he's innocent. He scarred for the rest of his life. That PTSD would be with him forever. And I see so many people that went through the system now who are broken. And no one talks about that. So, yes, thank God for DNA testing, not only here in New York, but around the country, because there's so many people being exonerated after all of these years, spending 10, 20, 30 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit under some of the most harshest conditions imaginable. And it's a tragedy. There's there's no way in the world you could ever repay them for what you've done to them. So the system is broken. It has to be done. And I'm very grateful that a part of my
0: journey was to be there to witness it firsthand so I could speak about it. And is that the next part of the legacy now? As You you talk about, like, being part of that chain where, like, the system now has to be addressed and it has to be corrected and it has to be fixed. Or is that a bigger problem? Like, I don't even know how you even fix it. Well, this it, it, You need all hands on deck right
1: now. It's a very difficult time because people don't understand this uh, uh, prison until you're there. It's it's a very complicated thing because, yes, crimes are committed. People want those that perpetrated crimes to be convicted. But what we have to do, we have to reinvest our money in society more so than war and weaponry. You look at all the money that's spent in wars, the billions of dollars, but yet we neglect our own. And a lot of things are rooted in, in jobs and opportunities. We look at the fact that a lot of jobs are outsourced to different countries because we want money over trying to make a better life for, for, for humanity. So now, you know, you, here you, you can have jobs here in this country, but, you know, the workers want more money. So it's easy to go to, to a third world country, exploit them and gain more profit. So that greed has created a lot of the problems that, that we see today. You know, uh, and it's just a tragedy that a lot of people want to do right, but it's difficult out there. You have a lot of people that want to go to school, but they can't go to school. You know what I mean? So there's a lot that's happening that's creating this situation where some people are going to be caught in this maze forever. It's just it's it's just a difficult cycle. You know, even we look at affordable housing here in New York, you have so many people that can't afford to live in these new high-rises that are being built in Harlem and in Brooklyn. So now you have a nine-to-five job, but you're not making enough money to survive, so you're living in a shelter, so you're part of the working poor. Or you're living in the street, but you got a job, but you can't afford the high rents. So this corporate greed has created a lot of problems that we see right now. So it's it's a much larger problem, just prison. But we have to look at prison, too, because I remember back in the early days, these conservative politicians spoke about the need to have tough laws on crime and you lock these people up and throw away the key or you give them 20, 30 years. But what you didn't realize is that that time goes by fast. So now that person that you locked up for 20, 30 years, you stress that we need to take away education and programs in jail, they don't need it. But so now that person's coming home after all them years incarcerated to nothing. He has no education. He has no guidance. All he has is pain and hatred behind all the way he went through. So you create an even bigger problem. And I'm seeing that right now. So that's not the solution. It, it, it's backfired. So we have to reevaluate some of the things in which we've done. And I think that it's governments, not only America, but governments around the world need to start focusing on the, on their people. You know, and, and it's just a tragedy and everything going. Even when I look at uh, what's happening in, 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 in throughout Africa, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and the Middle East, where you have this great migration of people leaving those regions to get to Europe because the governments have collapsed. But when you rewind and get into the root of those governments collapsing, what was the root of it? What created these wars and conflicts that led to this, to, to, to all of this uh, migration and hatred, you know, and people wanting to flee for their lives. We have to do better as a society. You know, world leaders got to come together. One of the greatest lessons I learned from hip hop that will stay with me for the rest of my life. This is a, a, a competition called the R-16 B-Boy Competition that takes place every year around the globe, mainly in Korea. And back in 2008, I was invited by the Korean government to go and document it. And what what this competition is, you have B-boys from around the world that come throughout the whole world. And they all of military age. And they meet in Suwon, Korea. And rather than battle with guns and weapons, they battle on the dance floor. And I found that very amazing. And I took a group shot of all these different nations. And the the, the common denominator is their love for hip-hop. And I was thinking about it. I said, this is how profound this is right here. Here you have all these, these young men that could all not only be in the military, but they could serve in elite units because of their, their ability. But instead, they opted to embrace hip-hop. So what I was looking at is how world leaders could look at them and religious leaders because both the, the political leaders have failed and the religious leaders have failed. But now you have this young generation who have embraced hip-hop, and they're all able to come together under one roof, and there's a sense of peace and harmony. And they battle righteously on the dance floor, and I thought that was amazing, so we have to look we have to do better to make this world a better place, and right now it's not really looking good, so it's going to be young people and it's going to be the artists who are going to have to use their voice to be proactive to make a difference in this world right now because everybody else has failed and I think that that's the only way that we're going to change this thing here through art and culture.
0: Have you been surprised or impressed at how hip-hop has evolved, and like like you said it you've gone all over the world uh based on your photography and hip hop has done the same thing. It's now a universal language as well now.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. When I first when when hip when I was first introduced to hip hop back in the nineteen seventies, nineteen seventy five, it wasn't even called hip hop. We called it drop in science. And it was something local <laughs> where you got on the mic and you said things that were relevant to a beat. And um then when I was stationed in Germany, yeah you know, I remember hearing um rappers of Light and the Funky Four for Plus One and I saw how, how hip hop was really developing in Germany in the nineteen seventies. And I said, this is a serious movement right here. You know, it's, it's, it's bigger than New York. Because one thing about the military, you have people from all over the country you know, who, who, are on, who are in the Army, the Armed Forces. And I saw how it was played out in the clubs and how everybody gravitated to, to it, especially rappers of light when it first came. It was this phenomenal. And then you know, fast forward 2008, going back to uh, Suwan, Korea, and how I'm looking at B-boys from all over the world who love hip-hop. And uh, what I find interesting about, mainly in Europe, a lot of the artists are, are conscious you know, like they like it was back in the 80s where hip hop was very social conscious, you know, dropping science. It's it's been diluted now. You know, it's more now in my personal opinion about uh, uh, materialistic things. But when I first came up, it was about the struggle. So I find now when I go to France and Belgium and, and uh, Germany and, 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 you know, throughout Europe and Italy, a lot of the artists talk about social conditions. And we need to go back to that. You know, it's a beautiful thing. That, that artists now, they see the power of the microphone and how we need to use this to talk about issues that are very relevant versus materialism.
0: That's what you've been talking about. You found your calling and your mission very early on. And sometimes, too, with hip-hop, there are conscious artists like uh, Trap Call Quest and Common and people like that who take the responsibility of the mic very seriously. But there's others who just kind of fall into the trap of materialism and greed and just kind of use it as an opportunity just to get ahead or to get those things you find that there also needs to be a course correction for artists as well who they don't take the responsibility serious and they try and just kind of use it to get ahead? But at the same time I think that it, it is their personal narrative and we don't really know
1: why a person says the things that he says. And I try to be objective now when I speak about people speak about materialism. Perhaps this is a person who grew up poor and never had anything. So that's 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 his dream. So he might speak about the big cars and the jury and, and the women. That's, that's his particular dream. Uh, I think that it's important to be a light and perhaps show that person. Because a lot of us, we might have been blind, deaf, and dumb at a particular stage of our lives, and we've elevated. Mm-hmm. So what we say, we, we always had a saying back in the days, proper education always corrects errors. So through one's example, perhaps we can give them guidance and show them another way. We all have to evolve. It took me years to really evolve to be the person which I am. So it's easy to condemn a person you know, for what they do. And I, and I can understand that because there's certain things I say, wow, that's kind of damaging right there. But I think that we have to be uh, a light and just show people a better way and say, Brother, uh, why don't you, have you ever thought about speaking about this versus that? Or can you explain to me you know, why you're speaking about these particular issues? So we have to set examples right now. And it's really important because we don't want this next generation coming up getting caught up on materialism. You know, we don't want that. That's very dangerous right now. We have to understand that. There's a lot of, everyone has a backstory. And if you really sit down and take time and speak to someone about their life, you can extract that and perhaps you can incorporate that in a conversation because this is all right. You talk about women and cars and jury, but, 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 but what was it like growing up in the town that you came from? You know, do you suffer? How are you mentally? You know, how is your mother doing? You know, talk about that. L- let's speak about issues that, that people really need right now, because we need all hands on deck. Because I found one thing when I first started out with young people, you know, they don't really want to be lectured to. You know, what I mean, you don't want to just sit back and say your generation is doing this, that, the other. Because every generation, to me, in my opinion, condemned the the the, the, uh, the, 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 the one previous that came before them. And when I came up in the 1960s with disco, my father was conservative and they found that disco was very repulsive music. They looked at our dress and found the repulsive. So we can't really c- condemn them. We just have to show them a better way and guide them. But it, in a, but it again, it's the narrative. When I listen to gangster rap. It's a reality out there. And it helps me to understand just how deep things are. It's like, wow, it's like that out there? I didn't know. So it's through those individual voices that help me to understand an aspect of life that's taking place in real time that a lot of people are not aware of. So they do their lyrics. But again, the elders have to be guides to the young and help show them away at the same time, be empathetic to some of the things which they're saying, despite how we might feel about it.
0: Yeah, when, when rap music first started, Chuck D called it the CNN of the black ghetto. That's right. Right. And that was the what you're talking about, just having that window in there so that people could hear the struggle, especially like stuff like Ic Six in the morning. Most of us had never heard of and yeah. didn't realize that was a lifestyle. That's right. But going back then to you and what you're saying about uh, rap music, then, is it is part of it the problem, too, is that how we kind of uh, pigeonhole people? Because like you said, you've been pigeonholed as a hip hop photographer, but you're much more than that, though.
1: You just got to show and prove. I mean, people could say that about me and like, OK, you have your right to see that. But what I have to do now is show you that it's deeper than that. And again, I use my social media feed to show a broader body of work, beyond my work, but my my thought process. Because I show the work of other photographers that I think are very relevant, in addition to show my versatility. So I appreciate those that look at my work and say it's hip-hop. And I understand that. In the beginning, I didn't. Because I, I knew it was broader than that. It was about me. It was about my community and people that I knew and loved and I wanted to save. And I didn't look at the clothes I really didn't look at that. I was looking at the soul of a person. But others looked at it as hip-hop. And then I started to say, you know what? Let me attach this song to it. Let me take, <laughs> uh, 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 how can I, what song could I come up with? Grandmaster Flash, you know, The Message. Mm-hmm. So when I think of, of, of hip-hop in my work, the first song that comes to mind is The Message. And I said, that's what it's about. It is hip-hop. But it's a deeper than that now because I do fashion, I do documentary, I do street, I do fine art. It's a lot. But the only way that you could change that narrative is by showing and proving that you have a broader body of work and speaking about it. And those that come to my presentations, don't think that you want to see me on the big screen, me just showing my photographs. Because you know I'm going to go there. I'm going to speak about Vietnam and the civil rights movement and show images that are very close to my heart that deal with social and political issues. So I have to change that narrative. So going back to these artists who are pigeonhole, you have to break that cycle. You know, and I often hear that, well, they, the industry, the record industry, wants you to only do this type of music. You know, I don't, I don't know about that industry, but I can only speak for myself. If people just want me to just shoot a particular style of image, I have to break that mold. And I can sit back and say, you know what, you know, I'm not interested in that. I appreciate the opportunity, but I'm not going to do that. I prefer to focus on this level. Or if I do, we have to have a compromise. You know, I'm not going to just focus on just shooting one type of photography. I refuse to be pigeonholed. I've been pigeonholed too long. And uh, after all these years, I've been able to really break out of that and show a broader body of work. Because when you really look at my work, it's deeper than just hip-hop. It's it's so much, it's history and culture.
0: But that goes again back to knowing who you are, though. Sometimes, too, when people are younger, especially when they're in their 20s, if they're recording music and things like that, they kind of still don't know who they are. Like you said, it took you a while to figure out your voice yes. and your calling. And some people are still kind of figuring things out. So they, they go with the pigeonhole because it's a lot easier than trying to figure out who I am or what I am or what I stand for.
1: It, it's a particular path that they're on. And I think as you elevate in time and your experiences broaden, you know, things will change. But if you are on a particular path, it, it takes time. You know, and my work has evolved. When I look at my negatives, I see the evolution of my work. So it just takes time, you know, you, and you don't want to remain stagnant. You know, you got to elevate. You know, at a particular point, you know, when you get older, you, you, you have to change your thought process. You know, when you go into your 30s and 40s, you can't still speak about the things that you spoke about in your, in your teens and 20s. You know, mm-hmm. it has to be a degree of growth. But I'm not here to judge anybody. People have to do what works best for them. I tell uh, my photography students, it's about elevation. Challenge yourself. Don't limit yourself. You know, what I mean, don't be like everyone else because everyone is going in one direction. You know, you have to be versatile and look at the, the various paths that are, in, that are in front of you and study various photographers that have done different type of work to broaden your scope. And I say that to the artists, too. You know, look at jazz, look at reggae, look at R&B, look at classical music, look at Native American music to your inspiration. You know, it's it's about it's, it's, it's always about growth and elevation.
0: And is part of this also the, the patience to do that, to slowly grow and to slowly evolve? Because. You, again, going back to photography, especially when you're doing it in the 70s and 80s, that was, you had to be very patient. You had to find the street scene. You had to set it up. You had to shoot it. You had to develop the film. You had to be very patient, as you kind of alluded to early on. So did that, being a photographer, did that develop your patience as well? Yes. Well, patience is a virtue. And we all have to have patience. We have to all know how. And I can't say all because I don't want to speak
1: for everyone else. I could speak for me and I tell my students, have patience and slow down some. There's no rush. Slow down and develop your ideas, you know, and take your time with it. We, we live in a society now where everything is rushing. You know, everything is this instant gratification. We want everything so fast right now. Microwave th- popcorn. Yeah, exactly. So you have to take a moment to kind of like just chill a little bit. And, and I think that, you know, and I was one that was constantly moving. You know, I, I produced like nine books. And if I slowed down, I might only had three books. And they would have been what I wanted. But I felt that I had to keep popping books out every other year. And it was, it was to, to uh, my dissatisfaction. So I think that in retrospect, it's just good to slow down and just take your time and just analyze. Take a moment to pause, meditate, you know, take some time for yourself. A lot of times we don't have that. You know, first time in my life, you know, this year I have a lot of time to be by myself and think. I did it in the military, which helped me to really develop a lot of, a lot of my visions that I have today. But uh, now I spend a lot of time by myself. You know what I mean? I believe in taking a day out the weekend, no electronics, turn off everything and just go back to nature and meditate. And in my meditation, I'm able to get my balance back and develop an appreciation for uh, the the simple things in life because we get so caught up in in technology. we got to always be on our phone. So, Matt, you take one day out the week and just turn off the phone and you're not communicating with nobody. You may be just taking time now to write and meditate, and that gives you your sense of balance. So, I encourage a lot of people to just take that moment of pause. We need that moment. We can't just go Mm 24-7. You burn yourself out. When I start embracing a day off, some might call the Sabbath, it's changed my life, and it's been it's given me time to reflect and reinvigorate,
0: my, you know, my, my mind, body, and soul. Yeah, because you you seem almost hungrier now than when you were younger. Is that accurate? Like hungry for change, hungry for passion, like hunger for hope.
1: Well, the clock is ticking right now, and I'm looking at a lot of things that happen around me. You know, I'm now an elder. You know, a lot of those that came before me are, are aging out, and 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 I feel that, I, that now I'm placed in a position. It's my turn right now. So I I do have a, 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 and it's not that I'm hungry. I have a desire to feed people. I'm eating. You know, my appetite, I have a good appetite, and and I'm full on a regular. But I'm concerned with trying to feed the passion of other people right now. That means more to me than anything right now. You know, we had a saying back in the 1970s, and I hold it dear to my heart now. I want for my brothers, I want for myself. So this thing's not about me. It's about trying to empower other people because I've been eating good for most of my life. But here, how can I be comfortable with a full belly knowing that there's some people out there who are trying to, to, to get ahead and all they need is some guidance and direction to know how to, how to fish. So as a fisherman, I teach others how to fish so we all can eat.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, that's a positive note. We got to end it there. <laughs> okay. Where can people find you online with all the socials? And your Instagram? Well,
1: basically, I think that the, the place that's uh, really, I, I I like to call this my home, is my Instagram feed right now. Just simple, at Jamel Shabazz. It's all there. Go back to my earlier posts. I have a website that needs to be uh, hooked up a little bit, but never let you can go to uh, www.jamelshabazz.com and look some of my work. But again, the IG page is it. And you mentioned that you have an exhibit coming up? Yes, I'm curating an exhibition at Photoville uh, September 15th called Perspectives. And um, that's going to be a, r- a group show of, of, of 12 photographers that I met throughout the, the world who I'm bringing together, you know, to showcase their work at Photoville for about two weeks.
0: All right. We can look forward to that. Thank you, Jamal, so much for, like, taking the time and hanging out and, like, uh, dropping the wisdom and the knowledge. So I appreciate it.
1: And thank you so much for coming. And I appreciate all the important work that you're doing. Continue on. And I wish you all the very best in all of your endeavors. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thank you, Jamal Shabazz. My name is Sam Yunnan and this has been my summer layer on location in Long Island. This was a rare and wonderful treat. Jamal not only opened his home to us, but also willingly shared his work during our time together. I'm always torn between Bob Dylan's edict, Let the Work Speak for Itself, and classic DVD commentaries. Do you want to enjoy the magic trick or do you really want to know how it's done? Henry Vanderspeck, a fresh Tastic Street photographer, joined me on this escapade For more on his work, you should check out Culturesnap.ca. If you dig the characters in Jamal's work, you'll appreciate the characters in Henry's work. Cheers and Tears can be directed to My Pal Sammy on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. That's My Pal Sammy. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Now, go outside and shoot something with your camera. Tell us a story.